Hello everyone and welcome to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Yamaha's Tenere 700 is an excellent foray into the middleweight ADV world. Associate editor Neil Wyan owns a 2021 model and he spent the last year adding and improving various aspects of his bike. Some add-ons are, of course, more vital than others, and he lets us into his secrets for getting the most out of his Yamaha Tenere. Neil's total enthusiasm for ADV riding, and the Yamaha Tenere in particular, were pretty obvious to me. I'm sure you'll feel the same. In our second segment, I chat with Court Rand of Ecuador Freedom Bike Rental. It was approaching 10 years ago that associate editor Jess McKinley did their High Andes and Deep Amazon tour. Ever since reading his story, I've always wanted to go myself. Maybe the time is now. (laughs) Court talks to me about the myriad of options his company offers, not just bike rentals of course, but even side-by-side and Jeeps too, on guided and self-guided tours. Court's telling of Ecuador makes it sound mystical, magical, and of course, very tempting. Hey, we'll see you there. We hope you enjoy this episode. It's been fun. Uh, And uh, I just wish I was about that much taller. (laughs) So So that's been been part of it. Because I I, just to share with you, I've got got like one friend I ride with that's like six, five, six, six. And I uh, went over to his house to do some, uh, to do, uh, he had to, he had to um, use an impact driver on my primary. And so I put it on the center stand and uh, I said, Hey, check out these twin pegs and it's on the center stand. And he just swung his leg over the bike. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like Oh man, that's just, I was so jealous. <laughs> right. so jealous. How tall are you? If you don't mind me asking. No, I'm, I'm five ten. Or okay. I used to be. I used to be. I'm probably five nine and a half or three quarters. But right, I, yeah, I wear a thirty inch, you know, uh, thirty four thirty pants. So thirty inch. So you've got a thirty inch inseam, and you you really don't have any problems riding an adventure bike at all. No, I, it is lower. I asked them to do that up front to lower it, so it, okay. it was, you know, it's down an inch. But then you know you. Add, add new knobbies to it or you know you do different things and um, you put an air pillow on it and up you go you know so, <laughs> suddenly you need to be seven foot tall again okay <laughs> yeah I mean Ed, uh, I like wearing the my I have different boots obviously and my uh, um, uh, climb boots have a really thick sole on them and it's just easier to ride with those really thick climb boots uh, but you know um, I don't always wear those because they're, they're pretty hefty. But in the beginning, I was doing uh, single tracks. Okay. Not very many because <laughs> I learned my lesson. Uh, <laughs> I'm not that excited about single tracks anymore. And so, I mean, I used to do it on an XR250. I'd go balls out on, on an XR250 uh, right. on, on tight single tracks and just had all the confidence in the world and, you know, a high bank turn with rocks in it and, and sweeping back and all that, I would just just go like it was nothing. But on this bike, I don't have the same confidence level. So, you know, you fall down. <laughs> right. 
and then you, you dropped it on <laughs> it's leaning like this on so you got a degree slope right yeah and, you know picking it up I, we went out and it was in the rain my son-in-law led this single track he was he thought it was great because he was on a suron <laughs> a suron's electric bike that weighs 100 pounds so and and he's six two so okay. what we actually ended up doing just to share with you is my we, there was actually three of us. There was my son-in-law, who's a really excellent rider, uh, on a Suron, which is he's way too big for him, and it's really light. And then me on on the uh, the Tenere, which is way too big and heavy for doing tight single tracks. And and I even had the side bags on it, which was nuts. And <laughs> and then another friend who was a really pretty new dirt bike rider. And he uh, he was on a uh, uh, Suzuki 400, the DRZ 400. Okay. And um, after I dropped my bike about five times and picked it up, and he <laughs> and he and my friend dropped his about four or five times, and he was starting to get tired. Uh, my son-in-law had the smart idea: why don't we change bikes? Right. So. so my son-in-law took my bike because he can reach the ground. And I took my buddy's DRZ, which is more my uh, my capability and weight capability for doing tight stuff. And then my buddy took the Suron. And nobody dropped their bike after that. And everybody had a good time riding out. So, you know, when you're on the right bike, <laughs> the right trail. But right. I, I just don't do single tracks. <laughs> I just don't right. do it. Right, right, right. I get it. What did the bike start out as? 2021 Tenere 700. Okay. Uh, and it had had 1,900 miles on it when I got it. And uh, it had a dented front rim. <laughs> okay. So somebody had lowered the pressure and hit a rock. I since replaced. You heard about my crash, right? Did, did you I, hear about I, my crash? <laughs> I did not. I, I oh. did not. Yeah. Um, I was doing a Shinko tire testing. So I went out to an area and uh, I put on all my climb gear because I'd be going alone and I wanted to stay safe <laughs> with my airbag. I, I never ride without my airbag. And uh, um, I rode all the way up in the mountain. I rode this track all the way up and there was puddles and there was mud and there was this and there was that. And then I rode the exact same track back so that I could, with it, air down to 2929 and, and I felt a little difference. Well, you know, it was about 10, 20%, a little bit better handling, less slippery, you know, stuff like that. And I, okay, that's cool. And then I pulled in the parking lot or the staging area and I aired up before I went home. Uh, and then I got on the bike and I started to ride out. And unfortunately, there was uh, a group of ATVs, uh, quads that were ahead of me on the way out and this is basically a one and a half lane road. And I have video, I have full video of this. Um, the, the quad, in, there was two quads in front of me. We're going about 25. The, the, the first quad, I see a car coming and I see the first quad pull over, pulling over and slowing down in kind of a turnout. Makes sense. He doesn't want to get hit by the car. And so then the quad that's in front, that's directly in front of me, he also starts pulling over and slowing down. So I figure he's doing the same thing. So I just went by him. 
big mistake. I would never do that on the street because cars on the street, if they're going to start to turn into a parking lot and they go, oh shit, no. And then they pull back out without looking, right? Well, anyway, he just turned into me like that, just literally turned. And oh, wow. he didn't look. If I'd have been a car, he'd be dead. Wow. If I'd have been a if I'd have been a logging truck, he'd just he'd be a gnat, you know, just flattened. He did not, wow. you can see he didn't turn his head or anything. He was gonna do a sliding U-turn because at the speed he was going, that's what because it was not enough room to make a big U. He had to have wanted to do a sliding turn is the only thing I can figure. And he hit his his left front wheel hit my my front axle and just broke everything immediately. My triple my top triple clamp broke. Just wow. broke. So I was standing and I've hit enough rocks and so on that you know when I got deflected I had enough I said to myself you know mentally I can fix this you know, because he kind of deflected me. But when I went to turn back to the right, the bike wouldn't turn. I couldn't right. get the steering wheel past this because it was broken. <laughs> Everything was broken and bent instantly. And all of a sudden I'm heading for the side of the road where there's a tree and a rock. And so I just, I hit the brakes to try and slow as much as I could, but I was already like on this angle. So I just went down like that, just slammed. And I did a Superman off looking back on it. I got a mild concussion. But anyway, I hit the ground, the airbag blew. And I, at that moment, I kind of, I got my senses. I said, I should start breathing now. Because <laughs> I, I realized, you know, I got my senses and I saying to myself, you're not breathing. So I, I breathe in, I'm still laying on my face, but I breathe in and I went, oh, good. And I touched, went like this and I could hear the, the um, uh, plastic of the airbag. So I, the, I knew the airbag blew and that's why I didn't have the wind knocked out of me or anything broken. I hear a whole bunch of people saying, are you okay, are you okay? And I'm still on my face and I just stuck one finger up and I, I kind of went, wait a second, give me a minute to gather, make sure all my body parts are together. So anyway, I finally got up, stood up, we stood the bike up and, and uh, um, I looked and sure enough, Everything was just broke. They act, the people actually trailered me out down to the main road so that AAA would pick me up. They couldn't ride the bike; it was unrideable. Wow. Um, going back to the to the original story, you know, you had this accident, so that then caused you to do a lot of upgrades, presumably. No, just just repair, just direct repairs. It was all front. It was front front wheel, front forks, and uh, the triple clamps. What, what have you actually done to this Tenere 700? I've done a lot to it. I've, it it's almost silly because then in, on the uh, Tenere forums, guys are always talking about, how can I reduce weight? You know, I'm buying, I'm buying a $500 battery to save seven pounds and, and uh, putting on a different exhaust. And and I, oh, I'd never put on a center stand, uh, you know, because it's it's an extra ten pounds, and and here I am, <laughs> just piling shit on this bike because I don't care about the weight. I, I'm not doing things. I'm not motocrossing the bike. I'm, right. you know, I'm riding it on fire roads now. That's my that's my joy. And, uh, you know, it's an adventure bike. It, you know, people can use it certainly as a you know as a single tracking you know motocross bike. But that's not what I do with it. I, I tried. 
I was 30 years younger my, and, and six inches taller, right. I might do more of that, like pole terrace or something. So I've literally, I've added, I mean, so much stuff to it. It's, it's almost silly. Like some, the mods, I mean, when I, I listed them, the Touratech windscreen adjuster to raise, raise the windscreen up or down two inches. Uh, seat concepts, comfort seat. Um, I actually got three different ones from uh, from seat concepts. Big chain because the seat's like a rail, like that, and and seat concepts. It's seven inches versus ten inches, and that difference of spreading your butt out made a huge difference. Giant loop panniers and other things from Giant Loop. The uh, Touratech skid plate. I've got some good dents in that sucker, and it's a quarter inch thick. I've hit some. Right. I've hit some heavy rocks with that thing. Um, the Atlas throttle lock, uh, the Touratech uh, uh, defends the handguards. Um, when that thing slammed down, doesn't doesn't touch anything. It just keeps keeps those handlebars safe. Um, uh, I go for comfort, so um, I, I I reached out to. Uh, Happy Trails. It's a company that makes different different parts, and they have a universal highway pegs. And so I have highway pegs on my on my adventure bike. Um, and I also had uh, Altrider universal highway foot pegs. Um, so anyway, I I have those. I just took them off um, and put back on the Happy Trail because they can stick out. I can put them down lower and farther out. And I'm going on a 1500 mile ride tomorrow. So for four days out to Idaho. So I wanted that highway comfort. Sure. Um, and then uh, Kassan, uh headlight modulator. I really think those make a difference uh, safety-wise. Got them to make one up for me. We actually worked together. The first one didn't work, then it did. Um, and then also the, the tailblazer where it, where it flashes when you hit the brake also. Um, and then um, for electronics, you know, to to light up uh, more like, you know, different electronics. I uh, got the uh, Heeltech Thunderbox. Then uh, I got a bunch of stuff from Camel, uh, the short kickstand, <laughs> uh, dropped the bike on Highway 101 uh, because I went to throw my leg over it. And it was, because the bike was lowered, the kickstand was then too tall. So the bike was really pretty steep like this. Uh -oh. so I went to put my leg over it and, if you go off road at all with this thing, uh, the uh, uh, the instrument cluster shakes. You can't see anything. It just it's literally like this. It's just shaking. <laughs> so he made these um, metal metal bars that lock on that hold it solid. So I put that on there. That was that was a big deal. If you look down at your, some people say I never look at my you know my speedometer off the road, but. I do because like if somebody says go four tenths of a mile, <laughs> you know, you can't see what four tenths of a mile is. <laughs> he calls it the anti-bobblehead. You know those things in your window? <laughs> yeah. So That's he calls very it creative. Awesome. Oh yeah. And uh, then uh, uh, the center stand from SW Motec. Uh, sure. I love that thing. I, I love for maintenance and, and just for sitting on the bike and, trying different things because the bike's so heavy and, you know, off-road, 
you know, you hit something and there's a lot of jarring and the bike's going up and down. Um, and I've had surgery on both hands, so I don't have the best grip anymore. And if I'm fully gripping the clutch, all I've got holding onto the bars is my thumb, basically. He's got what he calls, a, it lightens up the clutch. He calls it a one finger clutch. So it actually makes the clutch lighter. And so I literally, when I'm in the heavy stuff, I can put two fingers on it, or if I move over a little bit, I just do one. So I've got three fingers and a thumb around the handlebars if I'm doing anything heavy. That's done by Camel? Yeah, Camel, yeah. Camel wow. Adventure in Canada. Nice guy, very inventive. Uh, I've talked to him. A lot of the things that he makes, he invents them, but then they're not that hard to, to knock off. So people keep buying the Chinese knockoffs for his ideas. And uh, it's, it's a problem because I, he actually said, I've got plenty of ideas, but they're too easy to knock off. So I'm not even going to waste my time. So, you know, all the guys that could benefit from all these great ideas I have, uh, they're not going to get it because they're buying, you know, stuff off of Alibaba. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah. they don't buy it for me. Well, what a shame. Oh, it's a big shame. I mean, they, you know, Alibaba sells it for 20 and he sells it for a hundred and, you know, people complain about the price is too high. It's a great product. It's worth a hundred bucks. You know, it, it's, it's like the old plumber, you know, he knows where to hit it. He charges you, you know, a dollar for, for the use of his hammer and a hundred dollars for his knowledge of yeah. where to use it. And yeah. it's, it's too bad. So, you know, we're, the industry is really missing. So anytime I see somebody saying, oh, I bought the Alibaba this and the Alibaba that, I always pop on and say, hey, guys, you know, you're really ruining it for the rest of us because, you know, you're buying a knockoff and you're not supporting the small business that invented that thing. And you really right. should be supporting the small business because yeah. then they'll come up with more stuff for us that we can really appreciate. Right. It's almost like a sort of uh, you're paying for the R&D. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. So yeah. I also put a TourTech $1,800 shock to the rear. Right. This and is the extreme shock. Yeah. I was going to say, is that is that like a must have? What What is the standard Tenere shock like? I mean, why did you? Well, it's it? too light. Standard Tenere shock was designed for somewhere around 160 pound rider. I start out 30, 35 pounds over that plus gear, another 15. Uh, yeah. And then you know, you add uh, some panniers to it and whatnot. And uh, everybody that gets that bike that's a normal adult uh, tweaks the, uh, uh, the shock settings to maximum, you know, maximum, maximum, uh, you know, load and so on. And, and everybody says that, you know, it could be enough for you for your kind of riding, but most likely you're going to need to upgrade the spring. Um, so I just, I didn't know how much it would do for me. I mean, I've noticed that going up uh, washboards on this bike, I would, I would I literally, I decelerate. And so um, I made a mental note of where those washboards were so that if I ever got a, you know, a really better shock, I'd see the difference. And with this Tour de Tech Extreme Shock, I can accelerate up those same washboards because it keeps the rear wheel on the ground. Wow, that's a big difference, isn't it? Oh, really huge, huge. And also, uh, this bike has a big problem with the front end is really light too. I haven't done anything to it, but I use the front brake 
almost exclusively. I, I only use the rear brake I, if I need to slide the rear end for some reason, or like going down a really steep, you know, um, rocky thing or something like that to keep my speed really slow, but I'm still using my front brake. I have really good control over my fingers and I'm able to get, keep the wheel spinning slowly. Um, certainly have the ABS off. That's a disaster in the dirt. So the ABS off. So I, I control it really well. Um, but the front end dies when you hit that brake because the you know there's the the springs are really light. It it dies. Have you upgraded the brakes at all? Have you done anything to the front brake to help with that? Well, Galf, yeah, uh, got Galfer pads, and those those made a difference uh, in the especially in the rear. It made a big difference in the rear. The Galfer made it better than terrible. Okay. Uh, it's an upgrade from terrible by by a couple of notches, uh, but. Having the uh, having this uh, extreme Tortec extreme shock on there, uh, the first thing I did, I put it on, put my gear on, and uh, rode over the curb. I looked for cars and then drove off the curb instead of driving down the driveway. I drove off the curb to see what that felt like, and then went down the road, accelerated, and hit the front brake. And it didn't dive as much by having a better rear shock. The, sure. rear, the front end didn't dive as much. And that was that was a big, that was just really nice to see. Uh, it really leveled out the bike. And then uh, in the dirt, that shock just uh, made it just that much more comfortable to ride. And especially sure. on the washboard. The washboard, which I was hunting for, uh, literally I could accelerate now in a wash uphill washboard instead of instead of having, having it actually slow my bike down. Right, so. that's, really quite in, that's really quite interesting. So it's yeah. almost as though with the rear shock upgrade it's, and, and the Galfa brakes, you've got enough control over the front end. Really, you can, you can sort of put a front end upgrade on, on the back burner a little bit. I have actually. Um, I did get, uh, I never actually used a uh, steering damper. I got the, uh, RM3 um, steering damper, uh, and I really, really like it. A steering damper is a shock absorber for sideways motion, and it really, really works. You don't deflect. Uh, it's the MSC Moto RM3 steering damper. They're out of Australia, and um, very easy to mount. Um, ridiculously easy to mount. If you don't drop the little nuts and bolts, <laughs> you have to chase yeah. them everywhere. Of course, on, on, on track bikes, you know, steering dampers are very sophisticated. I mean, they're tied into the electronics right. um, and they, you know, increase the resistance as your speed goes up. Um, I, I assume that on an adventure bike or a dirt oriented bike, you don't need that so much. Not, not as much, but I mean, you know, Instead of the steering being so loose, where if, if you know you hit a boulder, and the you know and the bike deflects, and I mean it really snaps, deflects, yeah. it right. doesn't deflect. It doesn't deflect. Wow! It it just absorbs. It absorbs that hit, and you don't get the handlebars ripped out of your you know ripped out of your grip. It right. it really makes a difference, and I I I only have it turned up. Uh, uh, I have it turned up halfway. Most of the time, I never, I've never gone more than halfway. Uh, like right. there's 23 clicks or something, and I run it around 11 when I'm off off road, and right. um, it just 
it just makes a difference. I mean, you know, it's a six six hundred dollar upgrade. This is another front end upgrade that helps you yeah. control the front end. So right, you know, so now the the uh, upgrading the forks goes back another notch on the back burner. <laughs> it, I'm about I'm about there. Um, I don't think there's anything else I can do uh, to this thing. Pretty much, there's so much stuff on it. It's, right. It's just again, like I say, it's kind of silly how much stuff I've got hanging all over it. And then sure. uh, I saw um, this guy out of uh, Italy uh, has uh, the uh, instrument cluster um, is in the middle, and so. Right. I've got a RAM mount that has my um, camera and then my phone and then um, my um, Montana, Garden Montana, all here. And that's really heavy on one RAM mount. So if I'm off road and it's bouncing, I got to stop and pull it back up and tighten it up again and falls back this way. Really annoying. And I was also trading off with whether I wanted to use my uh, Zumo XT or my uh, Garmin 700i. And what this guy's done is he takes the instrument cluster and he's built this um, assembly that you could, and you move the instrument cluster over and it gives you room for the 700i to be right beside it. That's a neat idea. Yeah. yeah. So you said that SW Motec have been very helpful to you. What what else have uh, have you had from them? Uh, the center stand. Yeah, the center stand sounds like a real game changer. Oh, um, I love it. I yeah. absolutely love it. Uh, it is getting, <laughs> uh, however, all center stands, not just SW Motec, is getting in the way of the tr twin pegs. That's a whole new thing. This guy out of Norway came up with the idea that putting if your foot's here and here's your foot peg, well, right. if you put something to support your heel just a little bit lower, you've got more of a more of a place to push off and shove yourself around. And wow. also you're, you're distributing your weight on two places instead of on the, like on the arch of your foot where your foot starts to hurt after five or six hours of standing. Well, this thing is supporting with two pegs. And so it's almost almost like floorboards, really, but I mean, not quite, but yeah, it's interesting. But you the, you have the you have the rear one a little bit lower so that if you want to be just on the front one on the ball yeah. of your foot, you can be. But if you you know, if you're going through some uh, sand or some thick stuff where you want to really be able to push the rear end around, the your heel is back there to do the pushing. So it, it's a clever uh, idea. What a it's great a idea. very clever idea. Unfortunately, the way it mounts the uh, spring assembly on the right side of every uh, center stand is in the way. So uh, I'm going to have to take take the center stand off to put the right hand back peg on. But for this trip, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to keep it on. So what I'm actually going to have is kind of a test: left foot with the back with the with the uh, twin, peg, twin peg and right foot without it, and I'll see which leg gets tireder. I'll see which arch gets tireder. But you, as soon as you stand on that, you go, "Oh, this is comfortable." It's literally the first thought I had on that twin peg was, 
wow, this is comfortable. And I was only using the one on the left. And you right. can feel the difference between right. the support you get from the twin peg versus the versus the right. single. It does sound like the center stand is useful enough that you really don't want to lose that. I don't, but I'll see how much I love <laughs> how much I love the twin peg. A lot of people are now coming out with a um, uh, like an opposite side uh, picture a crutch turned up uh, like just the end of a crutch like this, where right. you, you you can actually put it underneath your peg, uh, put it underneath your foot peg on on the opposite side of your kickstand, raise the bike up, and then you literally have a makeshift center stand. Okay, it's it's just a I mean, you could do it theoretically with a piece of wood that was the right length, but okay. uh, a lot of people are using the ends of two two uh, aluminum crutches and putting the putting the the ends that touch the ground, taking them off and putting them together like that, and you end up end up with this adjustable bar that you can, you know, lift your lift your bike up with if you know to change your rear tire or you know do maintenance or whatever, and it's it's solid. It, I mean, I'm going to look at the trade-offs. I'm going to look at the trade-offs. Sure, sure. But I, I do, I do love that. Do love the center stand. I, <laughs> it's just, it's a convenient thing. Uh, oh, but SW Motec, so a center stand, also their uh, tank bag that that has a special mounting bracket that's right. uh, like a mag magnetic click-on. Very convenient. Uh, and then I lean, I'm way forward when I, when I ride, you know, in the dirt, I'm, you know, I'm over the front wheel and tank bags in the way. Um, right. So uh, they actually have a rear mount that's uh, that you can strap to the back of your bike, to your, to your tail section and put that tank bag back there. There's wow. been times when I've done that. I've, I've had the tank bag on and like, riding out on the freeway and whatever. And then if I am, you know, if I am leaning way over, I just pop it off and put it behind me and use the tank bag as a tail bag specifically. And it's a waterproof bag, uh, completely waterproof. So that, that makes it, you know, really, really convenient because up here in Portland, it, it rains eight months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very clever. Okay. Well, I, I guess the sort of the, the big question is what would you consider to be must haves? If you're a pretty serious, you know, Yamaha Tenere 700 ADV rider, what would you consider to be something really special? Having spent a year on the Tenere boards, many of them, and very active on it, uh, it's really personal. It's just like having a Harley or, you know, having you know having having a sport bike or having any any other motorcycle it it's for your kind of riding i was doing check marks on this list and it's mostly check marks i think the one finger clutch probably made the most difference in the rideability off road of the bike really more than the shock because i could always go slower but getting bounced around uh I wasn't able to grip enough or on the, on the on the handle grip. So being able to use three fingers and a thumb 
I've got a, I've got a good solid hands on, on my handlebars and they're not going to get yanked out of my, my hands. If, if I hit a bump, you know, hit a, hit a rock or, or hit a rut or whatever. So right. I've got a better grip. And also, you know, if I'm hitting like whoop-de-doos or something like that, <clears throat> which I haven't hit many of up here, but, um, those types of things, uh, having, having three fingers around and only needing one finger for the clutch. So, so basically being able to hold the handlebars fully yeah. makes a really a massive difference to the way. Exactly. Otherwise, okay. otherwise I end up pulling the clutch in if I'm only using one finger, but the it's really too hard to use just one finger that, you know, it just, he, he adds leverage to the, to the clutch pull. And so, um, also cutting off or using a short, some people just use, you know, they buy a short clutch lever. I just whacked it off, literally <laughs> cut it off. And then, because otherwise, when you pull it back, you're actually putting the clutch lever against your fingers and you can't pull it it's in. Your fingers, yeah, of course. Of course. So yeah. it's real convenient, you know, coming to a stop or whatever, just just pulling in and having it miss my other fingers. Uh, a lot of the must-haves are camel, I must say. Uh, the camel anti-bobblehead was was a big deal off-road because I had no idea how fast I was going, how much gas I had left, uh, what you know, anything. Couldn't see it. It was just shaking up a storm. So and just then, being able to stabilize the instruments so that you can actually read them exactly. is, is huge. Yeah, I can huge. see that. Yeah. I can see it. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, because the bike was lowered when I got it from Yamaha, the uh, having a shorter uh, a shorter kickstand made right. a big difference. Because when I even pulling up to a when I when I was riding the thousand miles up from LA, pulling up at a gas gas pump, I actually had to look at the lay of, of the cement because sure. if it if it was a little off, if I go to get off, boom. The bike, like would fall over i'd have to like back it up yeah I, i'm with you on that one tj's envy augusta brutale is lowered you know she's a girl she wanted a little bit more more leg room on it and i it's exactly the same you you go to park it on the on the side stand yeah and it's sort of teetering on the balance point and like yeah. Oh. yeah it was it was replacing the kick the the stock kickstand with the uh camel adventure shorter uh, kickstand for just okay. this purpose. Okay. He okay. actually has some that are taller and right. some that are shorter and some that are equal because it's actually a much better product than the stock one anyway, because you can actually lean it over and spin the bike like you do a dirt bike. You know, right. if you come across where you can't turn around, you, yeah. you can just lean the bike on the kickstand and it's that strong. And I've done that many times. Impressive. Then the, uh, the headlights really are have a cutoff point i mean it's really horizontal if you go into a turn you can't see what's you're, you're lighting the ground on one side and the sky on the other yeah and and it's dark right there where you're headed so um the cyclops lights do a great job and i can actually i have a a, a freeway here close by that has uh at late at night at one o'clock at night there's nobody on it and there's no lights. And so um, I actually went out there testing it and uh, turned them on and off and put a put a rag over my over the regular headlight to just see how much they did. 
And I can, I can comfortably ride in pitch black at 70 miles an hour and see comfortably to stop. They're that good. I'm really pleased with those. If you're, a, if you ride at night, which, which I do, then uh, the tour tech handguards just come with plastic things that you have to, you have to get rid of right away. The handguards that they come right. with are just like a, a light brush guard or something. Uh, sure. And, and I've, I mean, like when I went down on that 25 mile per hour slam, uh, they didn't even bend. They didn't, they didn't move. They didn't bend. Uh, you almost couldn't see the scratch, you know, a scratch on them. That's impressive. Yeah. Very, very impressive. And then the very important, the the skid plate that comes with it is basically aluminum foil. So (laughs) if if you're going to, if you're going to ride off road, I mean, you can hear rocks hitting you know, hitting that thing off, ting, 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 ting all the time. But uh, on one of the rides after I put it on, um, I was going up a thing with with pretty big baby heads. And all of a sudden I hear this slam, you know, and kind of slow the bike down, you know, got up to the top and stopped and looked. And, and there was actually, the, I mean, it's quarter inch plate that they've got down there. And there was actually a, was a <laughs> divot in it. So Wow. If it would have been, if it would have been the factory guard, it would have, it would have hurt the case. I'm sure, I'm sure it would have rammed it right up through the case. For comfort, the uh, seat. Some people don't mind sitting on a dirt, you know, on a motocross seat for eight hours, uh, but I do. My butt can't handle that. And right, right. The seat concepts uses the same, um, same seat, uh, same seat frame, but. They have hard foam that goes out ten inches. That's a comfort item. I see that you've also got the uh, the Healy bars um, uh, handlebar risers. Has that made a difference? Uh, a little. That is not so much of a must-have because you know everybody's taller, shorter. Sure. You know, yeah. some people would lower the foot pegs rather than raise the handlebars. Uh, but um, I've liked where it put my hands. Yeah. Right. I, okay. I like where when when I because I stand I'm a stander, um, and I stand right. for you know I'm not just talking 20 minutes or something I'll I'll stand for six eight hours. Uh, wow. I play I play ice hockey so I've got good legs, and right. so it doesn't bother me to stand and I'm more comfortable I can see better I I enjoy the ride better even on on back roads when I'm going under 50 miles an hour, I'm standing even on the freeway if the freeway slows down. <laughs> you know, traffic and whatnot, I stand. That's such an alien concept to me. As a street and track guy, I mean, I really have no off-road experience at all. So, you know, I stand up if I want to try and do a wheelie, you know, but uh, (laughs) beyond that. uh... (laughs) Yeah, standing is just normal and natural for me. I just just stand the whole time. And then um, those are the the must-haves for me. Uh, You know, obviously I love having, you know, highway pegs. It right. just makes it just that much more comfortable for me to get my feet out, you know, right. when I'm when I'm going down the freeway, right. uh, especially like tomorrow, will be four hours of straight freeway. Sure. So, but obviously, the rear shock—if it's not a, a truly a must-have—it sounds like it was well worth doing. Oh, absolutely. But you could go less by ju- by doing what many people do, and that's replacing the spring with like a—I think it's a ninety newton or something spring. I don't. I, I don't follow it too much, what exactly people are doing, but they right. upgrade the spring and that seems to just 
make because it's it's not too bad of a shock. This one is just so much better. I mean, it can't bottom out, for instance. It's got an extra piston in a place where it cannot bottom out. No matter what you try to do, it will not, it will not bottom. Right. So you're never going to get catapulted. Sure. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it it's definitely made a difference, but you know, it pretty much costs the same as all the other upgrades combined. Right. I guess my last question for you is really on tires. I'm sure you've been through different types of tires and I, I see you've got the Shinko test, but I wondered if there was any particular tire that you really were like, wow, this has made a big difference. The uh, stock tires were horrible in, if they were wet or mud. Um, okay. I mean, they're like ice, slippery, slip and slide. Um, the uh, Pirelli MT21s that I got were this, when I started riding with those, it was like, I'm driving a tractor, man. I, I, I'm just sticking to the ground. I, <laughs> I can take turns faster. I mean, everything was, I mean, they, they just, they're like, they're like cat's claws. I mean, they just, they grab the ground. Unfortunately, the front MT21 tire uh, howls and it just got so annoying that I just had to give it up after a while because I don't just ride, if you ride in the dirt, you don't hear it. But if you're riding on the freeway, anything above about 40, 35, 40 miles an hour, okay. it howls. I mean, it's loud. And it just got so annoying that right. I already had the Shinkos in the garage. So I just, I just swapped them out. But in terms of traction, it was spectacular. But I have to ride, to go for a, a run, uh, adventure ride up here. I have to ride minimum 40 minutes uh, on the highways to right. maybe an hour and a half to two hours right. to do 60 to 100 miles of off-road. Those 60, that hour of, I mean, it was howling, just so loud. Fantastic off-road tires, but keep them off. Oh, yeah, but okay. the rear was, the rear didn't make any noise, but the front, but the Shinko, it's not as good, but it doesn't make any noise. And it's okay. pretty good. Okay. I call it probably the Shinkos are maybe 75% of the MT21. And okay. there's still a lot of tires to try. A lot of guys swear by, you know, one kind of front, one kind of back and stuff like that. Okay. Um, the Pirelli MT21s were like, just like tiger claws. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. It would, you could feel it right away as soon as you got on, on the dirt. And on the street, uh, they were plenty grippy. I, you know, some people complain about knobbies. I mean, I was riding in the rain, in twisty roads, uh, highways, uh, never felt uncomfortable like I was, like it was going to slip out or anything like that. Yeah. They, they grip, the Shinkos grip just fine in the rain. The uh, MT21s do also. Right. Okay. Well, it sounds as though there's uh, you've done a lot to the bike that was really, really has made a big difference. But you're happy with the Yamaha Tenere as an it. ADV bike. I love it. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I've only put things on the bike that I wanted. What helmet do you use? Just I just got uh, the HJC I100 modular. Okay. Love it. <laughs> I love <laughs> the shark, you know, the, you know, the, the chin bar, like the shark, you know, the way it, it goes to the back. Well, no. HJC just did that now. 
Right. And okay. that's what I've always been waiting for. Because, you know, do you ride with a modular? I, I have done. No, I just wear a, I wear a straight, a ride Corsair X or a, or a Regent okay. X. Because, you know, when you, when you lift it, like when you're riding and you want to take a drink of water or something or eat something, you've got 80 mile an hour air going like this. Yeah. But with the new, uh, the new uh, I-100, your chin bar goes over the top to the back and your shield stays right here. So you, right. you're not catching any air. It was like, yeah, love it. Love it. Because yeah. I, I, I like modulars because I, I like opening it, you know, when I come up to a, a street light or, or, you know, talk somebody or eat, eat while I'm riding, eat and drink. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate all your all your write ups on the site. It's it's interesting stuff, and uh, I'm you. sure it's interesting content for our readers and now our listeners. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Neil. All right, take care. In this second segment, I chat with Court Rand of Ecuador Freedom Bike Rental. It was approaching 10 years ago that associate editor Jess McKinley did their High Andes and Deep Amazon tour. Ever since reading his story, I've always wanted to go myself. Maybe the time is now. <laughs> Court talks to me about the myriad of options his company offers, not just bike rentals of course, but even side-by-side -side and Jeeps too, on guided and self-guided tours. Court's telling of Ecuador makes it sound mystical, magical, and of course, very tempting. Hey, we'll see you there. We hope you enjoy this episode. If somebody comes to your website and they think, wow, Ecuador sounds really cool, how on earth do they figure out where to start? Well, that's, yeah, that's a good question. We're trying to, trying to make that easier. You know, We're trying to put in some graphs now or some charts to compare the different tour offerings because we offer tours that are uh, self-guided tours or guided tours, off-road tours, dual sport tours, tours that go to the Amazon, some of those Pacific, some go to all three regions, Andes, Amazon, Pacific of the country. Some are good for couples, some are good for, you know, gnarly off-road riding. So a little bit of something for everybody yeah i kind of trying to work now that's what i had an intern here working over the summer an intern studying tourism in, uh, in germany and so his job was to try to help answer that question for visitors to our website a little easier so he came up with a nice chart to kind of compare all the different tours that we offer so hopefully that helps <laughs> i'm also uh curious how how you kind of assess your riding ability i mean i'm a for example i'm i'm a peculiar case in as much as i would consider myself very much an expert rider i've been riding for a long time i really know how to handle a motorcycle the problem is i grew up in england i've really never ridden off-road at all so i have no idea how to read the terrain or or, or what have you and so I'd be tempted to say, oh, I'd, I'd love to take one of your, you know, off-road tours. But then I'm thinking, oh, this might be way more than I know how to handle. So how would I, how would I go about figuring out 
how what my level of expertise is and how not to bite off more than I can chew so that I'm then calling you on a satellite phone going cool I'm stuck in the middle of the Andes and I'm completely screwed help yeah I, I don't know I wish I knew too because there's just no way really to know until you're out there some people think you know I've had people tell me they're they're fantastic off-road riders uh, and and then we get out there and it's really quite a different story. And then I have people who've never ridden off-road who are just natural at it. So there's no real way to know. Now, what we don't do, we don't do like, I guess Chris Haynes and these other people down in Baja, they're like, oh, we're gonna go down there, we're gonna push your limits and all this, we're gonna go crazy, we're gonna go as fast as we can. And we don't have tours like that. I don't know if I'm classifying Chris Haynes. I don't know his tours very well, but that's not sort of the style we're doing. What we're trying to do is get off road and take your eyes off of the road and look up and see what's around you. Now, we don't go, we don't do a lot of miles in a day. I think the longest we'll do on an off-road tour is about 120 miles a day. Now that can take 10 hours to do, um, but we, we're not there to sort of like, uh, push things real far. We're going into remote areas where if you had something go wrong, could take hours and hours to get you an ambulance. So we're not gonna, our goal isn't like to race or to push people's limits. Our goal is to take it easy and go nice and slow and see things and enjoy and stop and meet people along the way. So we'll meet different um, riders, uh, different people like farmers growing chocolate or growing hearts of palm or uh, meeting people making bricks or making leather in different areas. So, you know, we stop and see what's going on in the, in the countryside, not just ride through it, but kind of understand what's going on. What's that plants growing over there? That's weird. All oh, those are called choclos. It's a source of protein. Um, so there's all different things that we do during the trip. It's a lot of stopping when we, and we give you a lot of opportunities to kind of Stop and enjoy what's going around you without feeling the pressure of having to ride really hard. Okay. So I guess, I don't know if that answers the question. I don't know. This is a big, this is always a question for any sort of motorcycle tour operators. How do you assess abilities? And for me, I just found asking questions on the internet about things is kind of useless because it's always not been a very good predictor of of who does well on a tours or not so interesting okay that that uh that gives a lot of confidence and presumably if somebody joins one of your tours are there do you typically go out in big groups um or or, or is it or can it be literally just a couple go on a guided tour with you guys well we've you know we do we have a we have a guaranteed departure policy which means uh if you sign up for our tour you're going to go on the on a guided tour you will go on a guided tour you'll have a guide even if you're just the only one so i've run many tours where there's just one person most of our tours i would say the average there's maybe four or five and we don't you know i think the most that we'll take are like 12 motorcycles uh on a tour so um so the groups are you know small we all we have a you know policy of riding together i think that riding when you have a group and you stay together 
you resolve the issues together. Somebody gets a flat tire or somebody's fallen. We all stop. We help and build a camaraderie. We build a team. We build a family. So after the tour, we've created some really strong friendships. I think after putting people through um, the challenges and having everybody um, come together to get through them is one of the great things about adventure riding and, and riding in a group. So that's what we try to encourage. Now, we also do a lot of self-guided tours and people could do those alone or they could do them uh, with a group of friends. I have a woman out right now. She's out riding a 12-day tour on her own. She's doing great with those. We kind of keep an eye on her every where she is at all times and make sure she's getting to her hotels and so forth. But yeah, our groups are small um, and uh, we try to just make sure everybody's uh, having the time to get to know each other and stop and see things along the way. That that's, uh, sounds really good. That sounds like a really, a really uh, good answer. Um, if, if you find that you're on a group and one of the riders is really a lot weaker and a lot slower than the others, are there are there ways to sort of help that out so that so that the more expert level people don't get too frustrated or yeah we do we do let people split up and we'll split up and let them go ahead um what we what we found is that that happens very little uh you know sometimes we will deal with we'll okay go up to the next go up to here we'll meet you up there and you can ride right up there but we found that that's really not um hasn't really been an issue um where people some people need to slow down but then they 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 find the pace to be just fine uh they're not a, uh but but you know all the curves and the and the riding and the loose animals here and all everything you're seeing around it's kind of an equalizer for everybody it kind of Everybody needs to slow down. Everybody needs to, and, and it's not like we can go super fast on these roads. It's, it's the roads are so curvy on the paved tours, on the off-road tours, you know, there, you know, there's some, there's some sections that are challenging, but it doesn't really serve us to go super fast either. We want to be able to look up, see what's going around, around us, stop and see things and, and it hasn't really, that's not really been a big issue. I think it is on some other places if you're gonna go ride in Europe or in the United States where there would be the op, there would be a huge difference in the speeds. But here, the challenges kind of make it uh, all the same. Sounds like a good equalizer where the challenges kind of slow everybody down. And uh, I really like that because, you know, tours that I've been on, you know, I find that I end up, all the pictures I end up looking at at the end are always all the gas stations. <laughs> oh, and you know, here's the Chevron or wherever. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. Really, we need to actually maybe think about stopping and, you know, tasting the coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. so, yeah, I think that sounds really appealing. But I guess going right back to the beginning, what was it that attracted you to Ecuador? I mean, you're an American by birth, aren't you? Yeah. By your accent. It's so so you're an American by birth. So suddenly this young American dude finds himself in Ecuador of all places. 
what made you what made you stay there well you know i i had i guess taken some time from work and i i wasn't sure whether i would go back to work or not i i set out from the states with my buddy Sylvain, and um and we had it in our mind to start this business so we evaluated every country we, we decided we would ride down to Argentina, down to Buenos Aires from New York City. We would check out every country to see if this was sort of a business that we could start doing. So we checked out every, you know, every country along the way. Mexico was great, but you couldn't really become legal in Mexico. And it just seemed sort of, uh, it was definitely a possibility. Guatemala is beautiful. I mean, so many cool places. That was definitely a contender uh, among among this such grip like the the um, big archaeological sites there just really really nice um and then you know um so we rode down we would check out like how difficult were the customs how difficult was the government how much of a pain in the neck were things and how friendly were the people did we feel safe did we have any you know issues were the roads in good condition when we looked at this, we all we had this in our mind. We're going through all the different countries, riding down, um, you know, through Bolivia. Bolivia, another country, is beautiful, but the government and the attitude of the people is just a little bit off. Ecuador was like, you know, we got down to Argentina. We said, okay, we're gonna start in Argentina. That was kind of the plan in the first place, and and you know, I didn't. I guess I didn't know much about it, but I got to Argentina, and it's kind of like being in. Uh, you know, Kansas, when, you know, you want to actually go riding in Colorado and you have to ride across the whole thing to get to the mountains. I didn't even know that. I didn't know anything about any, anything when I came down here. So when we got down there, it was like, you know what, where do we feel was the best place? And Ecuador was, you know, just at the top of the list, no doubt. Let's go back there. I mean, because everything is, you know, if we're in Quito, there's a fantastic network of roads. They've put the highest investment in road building in the Americas over the past 15 years per capita. Um, you have access to the Andes, the Amazon, the Pacific, all within hours of each other. You have the Andes, which are you know a couple of mountain ranges that, that are very wide through Colombia, through Ecuador, they come together very narrowly. You know, it's called the Avenue of Volcanoes. And then they split off, I guess, down into three different chains down in Peru and then further south. So Ecuador is like squeezed into the little corner of South America. And because the mountain chains are so narrow here, you've got access to all three of those regions very close to each other. So that's what we, you know, that's what we saw. We're like, wow, you can ride and things change so quickly. And it's in the cultures change, the food changes, and it's all within a few hours of each other. The hotel infrastructure is great. The people are super friendly. The police, super friendly. We didn't have all the problems of police that we had like in Peru and that we had in uh, like Honduras and countries like that. Just really, really super country in many, many ways. So that's what we chose to start the business here in Ecuador. Well, you you sold me. <laughs> wow, it, it just checks all the boxes, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But that really does beg the question. You've named three specific regions, Amazon, Andes, and the Pacific. 
do you have a favorite or do you keep jumping between them going no i think that one's my favorite <laughs> no i mean this it's it's i live in the mountains i live here we live in quito which is at uh, 9500 feet elevation wow. um so the weather here what's nice is we're on the equator the weather's the same all year long right now it's probably 74 degrees and sunny and it's pretty much that's the standard you know sometimes it'll be chillier rainy uh but that's that's so if you like that now sometimes you're like oh i miss summer i miss when it's like 90 degrees and hot and humid i can drive somewhere within a couple hours and have that summer feeling or i'm like wow i miss being really cold that doesn't happen very often but you know when i go up you know to fourteen thousand feet and experience some chilly weather um some snow we can do all of that here in ecuador now i love the amazon it's very different culturally the food there's some what i like in the amazon is i love hiking through the jungle and every time i go through there i'll see some different form of life or last time i went through i saw the first time a swarm of bees i've never seen that before like millions of bees i could swear hundreds of thousands of them at least just swarming around me in this i just heard it from um you know a couple hundred feet away i was like what is that and then i walk over it's just like this this cloud of bees yeah, it's like wow it's really insane but to go through the jungle to always see something new to go and go swimming in the waterfalls that's fantastic in the amazon We've got the pacific coast we have beautiful beaches to go swimming i can go down there and go and enjoy the summer at any time but i like to live here where it's kind of like always springtime so it's very nice oh, wow it sounds absolutely fantastic so as a first timer to ecuador which one would you recommend or do you do should i just you know just toss a coin or as a first timer for generally would be something like our andy's amazon pacific tour which is a uh which is a tour that goes through all three regions in nine days there's a rest day at the beach and then there's a rest day sort of halfway down the mountains to in the amazon jungle so you can either be in the mountains or go down to the amazon and enjoy uh, some time there but it's uh it's kind of a a sampler of everything that we have in the country it's a great tour the ho hotels are fantastic um it's it's a 99 paved tour so that that's a good one um, if you want to ride paved and there's a couple of little samplings of uh, some dirt road that are optional so as a, as a starting tour that's a good one you can see what it's like to ride on unpaved roads here which are which are generally unpaved roads here are a bit different than what you'd find in the united states and that in the states what you'll find are fire roads like i ride with my cousin out in, in montana and they're fire roads and they've got gravel sometimes real thick gravel i find that very challenging to ride on um but here is just a natural hard packed dirt road that's just they're very old some of them are made um, from cobblestone and this is even from the Inca and pre-Incan roads. Some of these are hundreds and hundreds of years old of cobblestone roads, which we have that are just absolutely stunning in Ecuador through the mountains, um, these beautiful old cobblestone roads. I haven't really seen anything like it in other countries um, to have such a nice network of these roads. Unfortunately, 
they're paving over a lot of them. I just, I find that to be insane, you know, because these things to me are worth millions and millions of dollars and they have a government call, oh, we should just pave over them. Um, they make too much noise or something. I, I don't know, it's kind of crazy. By the way, getting off track there, the, the Andes Amazon Pacific Tour is a great tour um, to start with. Um, if you want to do off-road tour, we have a four-day off-road tour that's pretty challenging. Um, maybe you want to start with something like our Dirt Deluxe Tour, which is a little less challenging. It's hardcore dirt roads during the day, and they're like palaces at night, beautiful hotels. They always feel guilty walking in there, all this dirt on me into a beautiful hotel or a hacienda, but that's what that tour is about. It's just riding through real remote areas, but arriving each night to a, like a luxury hacienda. And it's a, and that's a good experience as well. It's a very popular tour. So most of the overnight stays sound like they're in hotels. Do you do, you do a lot of camping or? No, we don't do camping. I mean, um, you could, we have, you know, I've had this available for the 13 years that we've been in business. I've had tents and camping gear available. I think once somebody's taken the offer the hotels here are just so good um they're inexpensive relatively inexpensive um for the quality that you get like i've been going to the states and seeing things like motel sixes at 149 <laughs> just crazy prices they're yeah. just not worth it in in very stale every every hotel we work with here is is, is, you know, uh, individually owned, operated, has uh, a soul and some uniqueness to it. We don't really do any sort of corporate hotels, that type of stuff. Uh, so I think every, every stay is kind of a unique place, has some different charm to it. <laughs> it sounds like it. So, uh, so what, what's the food like in Ecuador? Oh, well, like I said, there's different foods in the different regions of the country. So in the Andes, oh, it's a little chillier. What we eat a lot of is something called locro, which is a potato soup. It's kind of weird. They put in avocado in the soup. And there's different variations depending on what part of the country, you know, down in Cuenca, they'll put, you know, some fried pork rinds in it. You'll find, uh, you know, different vegetables up in different parts of the country. They're also, we have guinea pig. So guinea pig is something everybody wants to try when they're in the Andes. Um, it's very tasty, uh, but it's, it's uh, something that's very special. Now, our Ecuadorian ceviche is a little different from the other ceviche, like ceviche from Peru. It's got more of a mix of tomatoes, of onions, of cilantro, and it's a very, oh, it's, it's, I like it better than Peruvian ceviche it has more flavor it has more of a balance they also have something called enconcado which is made from coconut milk and butter and white wine and it's really good too so that's another sort of thing that we eat on the coast plus all the different fish we have um you know we have the fish market in manta which has one of the largest tuna fleets in south america all wooden boat fleet and you can go down to the market there and they'll slice off a fresh piece of tuna. It's like having sashimi right at the market. Uh, so, so good. Now in the Amazon, they have different spices and you know, there's uh, something called ishpingo, which is kind of tastes like um, 
a cinnamon sort of spice and um there's something i'm always afraid to try but people try it all the time which are these little grubs that grow in the in the wood there <laughs> so i always challenge people to eat those i haven't done it myself because i'm scared to eat that <laughs> but they tell me it's delicious so you're welcome to try that out if you want to try it <laughs> but yeah the amazon has some of its own unique flavors as well so we've got a little bit of everything of uh, it's all a pretty relatively different food um uh, but Ecuadorian meals are characterized in all of the regions by you're going to get always a fresh juice. You're always going to have some sort of fresh juice, whether in the mountains it's going to be a raspberry or blackberry juice. Down on the coast, it'll be coconut or pineapple or something like that. And the same thing out in the Amazon. They'll have a, a, a tea called ayahuasca, which has got a very good energy to it. It's sort of a different type of caffeine. But uh, they, they drink that down there. So you always got some sort of freshly made juice. Uh, you've always got a soup. And so what's nice in Ecuador, there's always somebody always going to take and make a soup. So that's just sitting there stewing all day, every restaurant you go to, or even at people's homes. The, and it just, it's so healthy. It brings all the, all the minerals and everything out of the bones and everything. And so you eat that, and then you've got your main course. So... Wherever you go, you always you can count on a fresh juice, a fresh and a, and a soup of some sort, and then your main course. That's generally what an Ecuadorian meal is, and it's and it's very nice, very inexpensive here. Um, the the time people take to make food is really kind of a special thing. People don't take time like this, so we take the time to stop and eat good food along the way. Sounds absolutely terrific. So the Amazon, the Andes, I mean, this is so evocative of, you know, National Geographic type, you know, photography and sites. Yeah, we have, I think, 26 active volcanoes in Ecuador, and we're not a very big country. We're the size of the state of Oregon. Um, oh, wow. Uh, there's quite a few um, volcanoes. Uh, what, you'll, what you'll see, what I, there's something that I call the Ecuador effect. Or it's no, maybe it's not just me that calls it the Ecuador effect, but this is when you go up to the mountains and you've gone above a certain elevation and you've got clouds below you, and then you've got clouds above you. Wow. So you're kind of like in this zone where you've got you, I don't know, it's very different. And then to see the sunset through that is really an amazing thing. Wow. Um, yeah, there's you know, so there's different towns here. National Geographic, yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. It's, it's sort of a time warp sometimes. You go into towns where they're still doing things that they would be doing 100 years ago. So I, I, I love to, all the farms here. They're not big industrial farms. You still go to farms where they've got pigs, they've got chickens, they've got goats. They've got a little bit of everything growing on the family farm. They're still, they're growing coffee. They're growing uh, chocolate. They're growing all different crops all together and, and each one of those things is producing for them on a small little farm. It's not like these huge farms where you just see, you know, one thing for, you know, hundreds of miles. We have that with bananas, but that's about it. The rest of it is small uh, farms. When you're up in the Andes, it's small little farms, a pig and a chicken and so forth. You'll see people still tending to the uh, to the fields with animals 
oxen pulling uh, things to plow the field. People out on these steep, steep mountains uh, planting their crops. It's just um, amazing. And what's nice too in Ecuador, you have a lot of cooperation. You'll, have, you'll see farmers, they all sort of work together. There's, you wouldn't be able to tell one family farm from the other just by looking at who's working on it. All the town people, the village come together and help each other with the, with the different farms. And we have a tradition here called the Minga. And this is when once a month, um, the town comes together to work on a project together. So a Minga would maybe be, oh, we're gonna clean out the gullies along the side of the road, or we're gonna pick up all the trash along the road here, we're going to um, just uh, all come together. Everybody in town is going to come together. It's sort of like we used to have in the United States with a barn. Um, barn raising. Barn raising, yeah, thank you. I think you have the same thing in the UK. That's where we got the tradition from. But it's the <laughs> same sort of thing of the community coming together. And it's a very nice thing to see. And if, if they do that so regularly, um, it makes a very, very strong community of people here. Sure, I'll bet. And the Amazon is presumably just sort of, you know, sort of muggy and humid and, and dense and full of exotic vegetation and, and scary animals, I would think. It's scary bugs. And <laughs> yeah, it is, but it's beautiful. I mean, that you, you can wake up and see the mist coming off the rivers. And I've, there's some beautiful moments. You'll see just these birds flying through. Um, just really a beautiful part of the world we when we go into the amazon we usually spend it with uh, a native guide who will take us out into the amazon and show us the different animals and plant life and how they use those things and the traditional uses um of the of the life that we see in the amazon so it's it's a really fascinating place to be um and so one of our tours we'll go down and we load our motorcycles into a canoe and we'll take that canoe 100 miles through the jungle so that we can stop and, and see what life is like in these little communities along the river. So when you get into these communities, it's really about uh, everything is focused on the river and sort of this rhythm of the, of the river that you'll see, it's very quite a different way of life. So we spend a day right uh, on the canoe and stopping and visiting different communities along the way. So that's always been a, a very popular tour of ours called the High Andes Deep Amazon Tour. Wow, that sounds incredible. So presumably you have not just the motorcycles, but you have, you know, the gear to rent and, and you know, all the other stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have over 55 motorcycles now. Um, and uh, uh, we have our own in-house maintenance department. We have a, a team of uh, mechanics here. We've created our own computerized maintenance system as well, but uh, really is a very proactive uh, maintenance schedule. We change cables, you know, uh, ball bearing batteries on a very, very proactive schedule that we manage here that we, on that system that we've designed ourselves. But yeah, so um, we also build our own crash bars, skid plates, all of this equipment to make the motorcycles really adventure ready and not to have our customers 
worry about things like scratches. We put like motocross type decaling on all of our bikes. So I like that motocross bikes have that decaling on there. So you don't have to worry about it falling, scratching, ruining the plastic. We've done the same thing. We put a very high impact uh, absorbing uh, sticker on all of our bikes. We have gear here uh, for people to use. We've got a big closet of stuff to use. Most people bring their own gear. And we also, uh, we're a partner with Climb. So people who go on one of our tours get a uh, discount on any Climb gear that they want to get for their tour, which is a good deal. We save hundreds of dollars. Sounds great. I would imagine with all of this stuff and everything that you've done, these tours are just heinously expensive and almost completely unaffordable by anybody. Is that correct? <laughs> no, I hope not. Jeez, I hope not. Yeah, I hope not. No, the, I, I hope not. But, you know, we we do things in a sustainable way. Good for you. Um, so uh, we, 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 we try to do it. So we've got, you know, motorcycles that are built to last. Now, motorcycles here in Ecuador do cost us twice as much as they cost in the United States uh, because of the high import taxes here. So it's really something that we... we um, we still try to really be competitive with other countries that don't have such high taxes on, on motorcycles. Uh, so uh, I think our, our prices are, I hope so, uh, with the other countries. But sure. when they come here, if you come on a, on a guided tour, like I've seen other companies that offer guided tours, and then I read the small print, and they're like, oh, well, your lunch isn't included, your gas isn't included, your tolls aren't included. Like, what, is that really a guided tour? It seems really strange. So when you do a guided tour with us, you don't pay for anything once you're on the tour. So it's really an all-inclusive tour. And then we, we try to make sure that it's really a good value with the types of hotels and everything for all of our customers that it's a- That sounds great. So yeah, I noticed that uh, on your website, you even include uh, you know, toll passes, you know, electronic toll passes. So you don't even pay for tolls on the roads. It's all included. Yeah. And I think that's a great idea. There's, there's nothing quite like, you know, buying anything and finding, you know, all these hidden costs that weren't, yeah, you know, I always feel a bit bait and switched when that happens. So I'm, I'm glad that you do that. I think that's, that's smart business. You must have a ton of repeat customers. I would imagine. We do. People come down, they try, they try one tour and they're like, Oh, dang it. I guess, well, there isn't time to do this other one. So I guess we're going to have to come back again next year. Right. Yeah, it's true. We have so many repeat customers and it's a, very, it's a really good feeling. We're very proud of that. I'm really proud of all of my staff here. It's, I'm talking, I keep saying it, me, 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 but it's really, this is a, an effort from everybody that works here. And I, I, and I think that we've created an atmosphere that everybody loves to work in. And I think when you when you have um, employees that really love what they're doing, it just rubs off to the customers, and that's um, that's what I think is happening. So I'm very I'm very happy to see that. Yeah, we have tons of return customers. Um, I think that the number there's one that's coming back next week will be his 12th time here with his wife. So that's really fantastic. We really love to see that. So this is Ivan back here. Bonjour, monsieur, ça va bien? Optimum motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Je vais très bien, merci. Ouais, voilà. 
quelqu'un d'intelligent qui parle français. Super. Un, un petit peu. Un petit peu. Qu'est-ce qu'on dit neuf Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Sylvain. All right. So thanks, Cord. I, I really appreciate it. Assuming that uh, a whole ton of our listeners have been completely converted, as indeed have I, how would we get in touch with you to, to book up one of these things? You can check us out at freedombikerental.com. A company using a very similar name, so I don't want anybody to get confused, but you always can remember freedom, and that's us. Freedom! <laughs> yeah. Okay, I love it. So, yeah, Arthur, we'd love to see you come down here, too. So anytime you'd like to come down, just let us know. We'll uh, have you come down. It was good to have Jess McKinley here yeah. from, from your magazine. That was, boy, wow, almost 10 years ago, I think. Or... Don't even remind me. I think it was uh, 2014, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, knocking on the door of 10 years ago. Can you believe it? I can't believe it, yeah. Has much changed since he was down there? Um, yeah, a lot's changed and a lot... A lot has not changed. A lot of the areas we went through with Jess were in very remote areas. He did the high Indies Deep Amazon tour with us. He was one of the first people to do it. We, we were kind of testing that route. We've had hundreds of people ride that since. So, but nothing's really changed. On that route, it's still um, 1908 when we, where we go. It's still pretty, pretty uh pretty uh different kind of culture still so that's terrific so everything's changed and nothing's changed exactly that's typical yeah, i love it yeah that's great okay thank you so much for making the time to come on i mean it's uh really sounds terrific what you guys are doing i'm really impressed well thank you it's really a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today so thanks thank you very much